Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God, this morning. I hope this parable sounds very familiar to you, um, because after all, you may recall that just two weeks ago, I was discussing this parable. That's the parable of the sower, with its partner, the parable of the wheat and the tares. I hope, uh, if you were here, that you recall some of my key messages then, that instead of viewing these parables only as something external, that is, looking at ourselves and others as either the wheat or the tares, or ourselves as good or bad soil, that perhaps we should also remind ourselves that we are really a mix of both, and that as we prepare for Lent, we should identify the parts that need work and start now to figure out how we will work on it in the coming weeks. But today I want to take a different tack, and I want to start with a question, a question inspired by St. Paul's epistle to the Corinthians that we read from today. What struggles have you really endured for Christ? For me, I often feel like I struggle just to follow Christ, much less endure anything for Christ. Sure, I try to do the right thing and talk to people about the truth and defend those who are unjustly attacked for what they rightly believe, and sometimes that makes people unhappy with me. However, I don't live under the constant threat of real persecution of me or my family being kidnapped or murdered simply because they confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And so let's hear again what Paul has to say here in the midst of an impassioned defense of his apostleship to some of the Corinthians who have been led astray by false teachers. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, one devours you, etc. And then he says, you know, like, whoever these people are, yeah, they're Hebrews, well, uh, me too. Are they Israelites? Yeah, me too. Are they see? Yep, me too. And so again, he's defending v- vigorously his apostleship to the Corinthians because, again, he's, he's come uh, late, right? He's been struck down on his horse, and he, didn't, he wasn't there for the events of, of Christ's life. So he's having to defend him, himself against other folks that are trying to say that Paul isn't really uh, an apostle. And, of course, we now call him often the apostle, like the greatest of all, despite those things. And then he goes on to talk about being beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, being in the sea overnight, journeys, all these things that he dealt with, and being, um, uh, getting 39 lashes, and all of this over and over again. And of course, he will ultimately go to his um, martyrdom in Rome. And he concludes by saying, if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. Sometimes that is translated as thorn in his side. And the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. And um, this, this passage goes on beyond where we are today. Because again, he, he, he talks about, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. And then if you go just a little bit further, it says that it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. Here he has been just like going off, right? 
And it says, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man who 14 years ago, whether in body I do not know, or whether out of body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. He's talking about himself, we believe. Uh, but he's again, in this case, not boasting, right? He's trying to be humble about it. I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was called up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be, or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I had pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So with all this foolishness, one man, upmanship and boasting, um, it, it sounds like maybe we turned on one of the 24-hour news channels. But Paul comes for, for, to a much better conclusion than those shows and one that we can feel as a firm foundation. For when... I am weak, then I am strong. I'm sure you've endured sufferings, but have you suffered for Christ as Paul has? Hold that in your mind and note that Paul is not the only one who's talking about messengers of Satan, persecutions, and thorns in our lectionary rings as we turn back to the gospel, right? Because there, Jesus in his parable is talking about the seed. He talks about the, the thorns that some of it fell among the thorns, the thorns sprang up and choked it, right? And he talks about Satan coming, all this as he explains what the parable means. So here Jesus, in the parable of the sower, is actually discussing very similar themes to Paul. And so then we have to ask, well, why were these passages put together as the selection for the two Sundays before Lent? Or the two Sundays before Lent, yeah. And um, I think it's because they tell us the three fundamental aspects of Lent. Be good to yourself, be good to your neighbor, and be good to God. Yes, first, you need to be good to yourself. I know that's not most people's concept of Lent. Because it seems that most people see asceticism as our, in our society as a restriction rather than a life-giving freedom. In fact, this is probably a very real messenger or angel of Satan that everyone throughout time has had to deal with but which seems so magnified in our postmodern world where literally anything goes because I'm my only judge and jury. If it seems right to me, then it's right. Nobody can tell me how to live my life, not God, not my neighbor, not my family, only me, me, me. But in his book, The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, the author Barry Schwartz tells us that while we assume that more choice means better options and greater satisfaction, that science says actually the opposite is true. Choices, choices make us begin to question our decisions before we even make them, and sometimes paralyze us from even making decisions. They set us up for unrealistically high expectations and lead us to blame ourselves for any and all failure, since our decision amongst so many good options must be our fault. Of course, this doesn't just apply to the next pair of shoes you buy, but also to making decisions about life partners, etc. And let's take that example for a moment, life partners. A few generations ago, the vast majority of people would have had relatively few choices of who they married 
from their village or nearby towns. You may have even had uh, arranged or near arranged marriages. And guess what? Divorce rates in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries were 5 to 10%. And now they're 40 to 50%. Now, it's probably not all explained, right, just by this, this more focused choice and just having what you got. But I think it is in part. And it turns out that couples now between the ages of 20 and 25 are 60% likely to get a divorce. Really? So somehow getting married um, is, is it's more likely that you're going to end up in divorce than stay together. So why bother getting married at all? But, and guess what? Indeed, the divorce rate has increased over the, has decreased over the past decade in large part because people have stopped getting married. So I think there's an aspect of this paradox of choice at work. Because now, you know, right, you go online, you see that there are mostly a bunch of bozos on there, and you realize you better take whatever comes that seems pretty good. And unfortunately, it turns out, and Meredith will happily confirm this, I'm a bozo too. The truth is simply that marriage is hard for the vast majority of people. It always has been. And worse now, we're walled into believing that we can actually find someone that we could get along with every day of our lives because we have all these people advertising their awesomeness when, in fact, they're just ordinary people like you and me. Our expectations are too high, and at the first hint of trouble, we're out of there. Completely sure we can find a pair of shoes that will fit better and not wear out so soon. And the Orthodox Church attacks this problem of choice and its devastating consequences on our lives with obedience. And now I'm not speaking just of life partners, but of life in general. However, I'll note that Christian marriage is intended to be one of mutual obedience by the husband and wife. And the church recognizes that in all things our obedience is required and that counterintuitively obedience is really, really good for us. In fact, the church tells us that someone else telling you what to do is freedom. What? Most of us have not dealt with being obedient since we were children, and even then, if you were anything like me, you probably weren't the best at it. However, by limiting our choices about mundane things, like what we're going to eat, we are free to think more about God and our neighbor. By being obedient to God, that is following God's law, and abstaining from sin, we're freed from so many false idols, idols that have enslaved us and often blinded us. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. As Paul tells us just before the passage we read today, God's law is a law of freedom, a law that takes away choices that enslave us to our urges and passions, a law that lets us be free to really make the choices that matter, to exercise our free will as God exercises his, to bring joy, love, and creation rather than regret, hate, and destruction into our world. We don't know what Paul's thorn is, and while some think it was a physical ailment, I prefer to think it is just as likely to have been a sinful passion of some kind. In the gospel, certainly it appears that the thorns are related to such passions. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Nowhere here does it say that we should not experience joys and pleasures in life. It merely says they should not choke us. We need to keep them in check. And indeed, Paul's thorn shows us the positive interpretation of this passage. The thorns, although evil, are permitted by God because for some of us, they poke us just enough that we stay close to God and don't let them choke us. If those cares, riches, and pleasures are choking out the word of God, then indeed they are sinful too. And this pre-Lenten season is a time to start to deal with that also. Relating back to Paul, we know that Paul asked that his thorn be taken away three times. But instead, Paul recognizes that this struggle is part of what makes him grow. 
and more so. It's a big part of what binds him to Christ. Even if Paul's thorn is some sort of besetting sin, we must remember that he who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Also from this epistle in the fifth chapter. Jesus took the sin of the world upon himself and turned the world upside down. And even the angels were astonished. As Christ became sin, hung on a tree in a shameful death by Jewish standards, and indeed this is the primary reason that Jesus was not recognized universally as the Jewish Messiah, by that shameful death, he defeated death in the grave. Drawing a parallel, God reminds Paul that his situation reflects God's own weakness that was beyond wisdom, beyond comprehension, and that Paul has nothing to fear because Paul has been set free from the power of sin and death, set free from that thorn by God's grace, God's free and loving gift. Some might say Paul's prayer was unanswered. Instead, I say Paul received a hundredfold reward. God didn't give Paul a license to sin, of course not. In fact, instead, he gave Paul the rich soil in which to grow. God's saying that he won't take it away because Paul, as he recognizes himself, needs a little knocking down. And God expects Paul to suffer through it because he knows it will make Paul and you, if you also accept your thorns and, this world, and the world around you better. Not in the moral sense, but in the Christ-like sense. Of course, this was nothing new. The Old Testament is full of passages like the following. Proverbs, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Or from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Just as God showed the ultimate in humility by becoming incarnate as a little human baby, an obedient child to his parents, both his human ones by flesh and legality, Mary and Joseph, and his divine one, God the Father, and, uh, and dying an undeserved death on the cross, the body of Christ, the church, asks us to be obedient through fasting and abstinence. And that is part of what the Lenten journey we are about to embark on is about. It's a time to put aside those riches and pleasures so that we can tend to the garden of our soul. It's likewise a time to put aside our cares, our worries, and anxieties about the choices we will make and have made in the past. And instead, just allow yourself to, be do, to do what you've been told can't be your fault when you're just doing what you're told. Then we can find peaceful time to pray and relate with God, not allowing him to be choked out by incessant social media, YouTube, streaming TV, smartphones, buzzing, etc. So yes, be good to yourself. Avoid all those choices that the devil gives you to confuse you, to tempt you, to enslave you, and be content with what you have. You already have it all. You have the world to come. You have a ticket to the wedding feast of the Lamb. You already have God. Everything else is merely a chain holding you down. So be obedient and begin to break those chains. Fasting is medicine for the whole person, body, mind, and soul. And a final note about fasting that's also noted in our parable. It's okay to do more than what's prescribed, but don't do more without doing what's prescribed. Otherwise, again, you're just simply giving up to your own wants again and missing a big part of the point. But honestly, you should only do more cautiously under the obedience of a spiritual guide like your spiritual father. Otherwise, you may flame out like those in the parable without roots. 
Now the second part, be good to your neighbor. And that brings us to the second concept, Lenten concept of almsgiving. <clears throat> As I mentioned last week, um, that, that, that it doesn't mean just giving money to a beggar on the street, although that's hardly a bad thing. But to be truly good to your neighbor, you have to start with those around you. You have to be good to your friends and especially your family. It starts with those around you all the time. Give freely as the sower gives his word to all, regardless of outcome. You're likewise, and you likewise give freely of your whole person and not just of your pocketbook. Lay down your life for God and your neighbor as Christ did for you. Then you will truly have the spirit of almsgiving. And finally, be good to God. He doesn't need it, but he does love it. And God is the philanthropist, the true lover of mankind. He's given all for you and sustains you to this day. Give him thanks. Talk to God in your prayers. The third Lenten concept. Don't just ask for stuff. Do you like people coming to you just asking for more and more? Of course not, and neither does God. He wants a relationship with you, yet that relationship is probably a lot more like a human relationship than some of us think. After all, let's not forget that we're created in the image and likeness of God. And Metropolitan Anthony Bloom reminds us in his book, Beginning to Pray, and if you need some Lenten reading, that's a great choice. Really little book, but it'll, it'll cut you to the bone, I promise. And his book, Beginning to Pray, Metropolitan Anthony says that it's, quote, very important to remember that prayer is an encounter and a relationship, a relationship which is deep. And this relationship cannot be forced either on us or on God. The fact that God can make himself present or can leave us with the sense of his absence is part of this live and real relationship. If we could mechanically draw him into an encounter, force him to meet us simply because we have chosen this moment to meet him, there would be no relationship and no encounter. If you look at the terms in relation in the relationship in terms of mutual relationship, you will see that God could complain about us a great deal more than we about him. We complain that he does not make himself present to us for the few minutes we've reserved for him. What about the 23 and a half hours during which God may be knocking at our door and we answer, I'm busy, I'm sorry, or when we do not answer at all because we don't hear even the knock at, our, at the door of our heart, of our minds, of our conscience, of our life. So there is a situation in which we have no right to complain of the absence of God because we are a great deal more absent than he ever is, end quote. Yikes. Good, good stuff. So now you have your Lenten framework, fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. Be good to yourself, be good to your neighbor, and be good to God. What else is there? Nothing. Nothing to Lent, nothing to life. We should be practicing our Lenten disciplines every day, not just during Lent. But Lent is, again, a time that we focus on them, to put our lives back in balance, a balance that we too easily fall out of. A time to put ourselves on the narrow road back towards God to the road, true freedom and abundance. A life of all the rich treasures that God has given us, not choked out by the thorns of our passions, trampled by temptations and persecutions. Finally, remember not to turn fasting into simply another care that will merely choke out the true purpose of Lent. For example, when your family invites you over for a Friday night steak dinner, decide whether your fasting is a conversation piece or a wedge that's going to divide you. And whatever you choose, do it in love. And if you fail along your Lenten journey, and you will, you will fail sometimes, just get back up and keep going, just like you do in the rest of your life, I hope. Don't beat yourself up. And finally, just remember to take care of yourself, love your neighbor, and love God. And then you're going to achieve the true purpose of life. Amen. Talks at Advent 
homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.